Well, good morning everyone and uh, let's uh, just continue in our worship and let's come and pray to God uh, together. So let's pray. It's a bit of a challenging message this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning and we just appreciate so much today being able to gather together into this place and together with our voices and in our hearts to lift up the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is that long-awaited Word of God spoken into human history who reveals who you are and what you're like. And we praise you that he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords this morning. God, we pray as we come to your word now that you would reveal that to us, Lord, if we don't understand that yet, and that, Lord, you would help us today to live our lives in light of the fact that you're King of Nations. So, Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit uh, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The story found its way into the newspapers last year that a Cambridgeshire Cambridgeshire priest had converted to Hinduism. Maybe you remember the detail of the story. The Times newspaper uh, headed it in its article, Hinduism, no barrier to priest in the Church of England. It was a shocking story, I suppose, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, it would have been more shocking than it is today. But still surprising. The small print of the story told us that this priest, the Reverend Hart, had recently moved to India, had rebranded himself with a Hindu name, Ananda, and had taken up worship of the snake god, Nagar. And despite these facts, the surprise was that the Church of England had renewed his priest license. Evidently, it didn't matter to these religious authorities that he had a pick-and-mix religion. And Reverend Hart himself evidently subscribed to this view. He said, I quote, I have neither explicitly nor implicitly renounced my Christian faith or priesthood. So he's a Hindu Christian, or a Christian Hindu, depending on which way you want to look at it. He added how he embraced Hinduism in the spirit of open exploration and dialogue. Something essential for any modern spirituality. Well, I don't know how that kind of thing strikes you this morning. It's certainly a popular notion today. It is just so 2007 what the reverent heart espouses, not least in our pluralistic, many-gods society. Very fashionable to say that in religious terms, you can have your cake and eat it. That like cars or or jewellery or pairs of shoes, you can buy into as many religions and as many gods as you want at the same time. All are good, all are valid, And all, the theory goes, lead to God and lead to salvation. I want to suggest to you this morning that this is not 
a valid perspective. Because you see, while this may be popular, while the, the tide of our culture might be going in this direction, the Word of God stands firmly against the tide. And the Bible says that we cannot pick and mix our religions. The Bible says neither that any old religion will do, nor that many religions will do. The Bible, in fact, has a very simple formula. Incredibly simplistic. Here it is. There's one God, and He rules over all nations. There's one God, and He rules over all countries, all cultures, all continents. Every person on the face of the earth. He's a global God. He's Lord of all. King of nations. Now, it's this understanding, I believe, that underpins the passages that we're going to consider this morning. Jeremiah chapters 46 to 49. You open them in your Bible and you think these are all about judgment. And they've got lots to say about judgment, but they're actually about the fact that God rules over all people. So let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 46. We're actually considering four chapters today in the sermon. Before this week, I thought it was three chapters. Then I realized it was worse than I thought. <laughs> Suppose it's like if you have three children and you've got chaos with three children. What difference does a fourth make? Okay. So, same kind of thing. We're going to read chapter 46 or part of it just to get a feel. There's nine nations and we're going to focus on Egypt in the reading. So let's look at this. A message to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord, verse 1, that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. Concerning Egypt. This is the message against the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was defeated at Carchemish on the Euphrates River by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare your shields, both large and small, and march out for battle. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, take your positions with helmets on, polish your spears, put on your armor. What do I see? They are terrified, they are retreating, their warriors are defeated, they flee in haste without looking back, and there is terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee, nor the strong escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they stumble and fall. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters. She says, I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. Charge, O horses. Drive furiously, O charioteers. March on, O warriors. Men of Cush and Put, who carry shields. Men of Lydia, who draw the bow. But that day belongs to the Lord the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance for vengeance on his foes. The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. For the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will offer sacrifice in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and get balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. 
But you multiply remedies in vain. There is no healing for you. The nations will hear of your shame. Your cries will fill the earth. One warrior will stumble over another. Both will fall together. Then we'll just drop down to verse 25. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt and her gods and her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. I will hand them over to those who seek their lives, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited, as in times past, declares the Lord. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make them afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Amen. Well, for 45 chapters now, count them, 45 chapters of Jeremiah along with our dear prophet, we have been focusing almost relentlessly on the tiny nation of Judah. And it's been unrelenting, has it not? As time and again, through one king's reign and another king's reign, through peacetime and siege time and then exile, the Lord has continued to speak And continue to speak to his people. As such, I guess we could say that Jeremiah's ministry has been local in its focus up until this point. And actually, if if you know the book of Jeremiah, you might say that this has been somewhat surprising. If you remember right back to the opening chapter of Jeremiah and the, the initial call of the prophet. The Lord had told him what the scope of his prophetic ministry would be. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That last sentence is very significant, I suggest to you. Jeremiah was not just appointed to the nation of Judah. He was not just appointed to his locale, but he was appointed to be a prophet to the nations of his day. And yet we've come 45 chapters, and maybe you've been wondering, where are the nations? Well, here they are, Jeremiah chapter 46 through to chapter 51. Six chapters, no less than ten nations. It's probable that Jeremiah gave these messages throughout the course of his ministry, but they are grouped together at this point in the book. From Egypt to Philistia, from Moab to Ammon, from Edom to Damascus, from Kedar and Hazor to Elam. If you're counting, that's nine nations. And next week, if you come back, if you come back after this, you'll hear Peter speaking on Babylon. Two chapters on the biggest foe to God on the face of the earth and what God has to say to them. 
The message, as I say here, is that God rules over all nations, that he is a global God, that he is not restricted, he is no small-time sovereign. He's king of nations. Now, I want to suggest three things that flow from that. Three implications that we see in these chapters. First of all, because God is the king of the nations, God knows the sins of the nations. Secondly, because he's king of the nations, God judges the sins of the nations. And thirdly, finally, remarkably, because God is king of the nations, God saves the nations from their sins. So let's consider these points now, shall we? And I do apologize, this is going to be something of a flyover this morning. Uh, it's going to be, you want to imagine it this way, it's like when you're circling low in an aeroplane over Edinburgh or something, and you can see some of the landmarks, and I'm the person sitting next to you pointing them out. Okay? And saying, that's what that is. That's what, notice this. Later on, you're going to have to get down into the, onto the ground and examine them closely. Okay? So, first of all, here's the first major landmark in the terrain of our text. God knows the sins of the nations. The king of the nations knows what's going on in his kingdom. And he knows the sins of the nations. Now, this of course is part of of what we sometimes call God's omniscience. It's a wonderful attribute of God and it simply means this, that God knows everything that there is to know about everything. God knows everything there is to know about everything. And as much as anything else, these chapters reveal this attribute of God. God has complete knowledge of the nations of the world. Maybe sometimes we underestimate this fact. Because as we read the Bible, it's a very focused book. It focuses geographically on one small tract of land, the nation of Israel. It focuses ethnically and religiously and politically and spiritually on this small but significant nation. And so we might get the mistaken impression that God doesn't know what's going on elsewhere. But as I read these chapters, as we, as we read 46, 7, and 8, and 9, we are reminded that God knows the nations comprehensively. Some years ago, I worked with a chap who had an extraordinary knowledge of geography. Just remarkable knowledge of places. He was also a ranger supporter. So he didn't have complete wisdom. <laughs> and the story was that on one occasion, he got to meet some rangers players after the football match in the lounge. And they were just amazed at him as they, they prodded him with questions about some of the most obscure nations they could think of. And he came up with every capital city. He could even tell them what the capital had been called before the current designation. A mastermind on the subject. Friends, do you know this morning that God has mastermind knowledge of the nations of the world? Commenting on these chapters, one writer says, quote, All these oracles show an extraordinary knowledge of the geography, history and politics of these nations. So, for example, when we read in chapter 48 about the nation of Moab, a nation that Jeremiah has never visited, 
we find that no less than 20 Moabite towns are specifically named. God knows all the towns. God knows all the villages in the nation of Moab. And he knows the terrain. He knows in chapter 46 uh, about the rising and falling of the Nile. He knows in chapter 49 about the land formations where where the Ammonites hide out. And he knows how the Edomites, in the same chapter, how they live in the clefts of the rocks. He knows the politics of the nations. And he even knows the, the specific weaponry particular to each nation. God doesn't need the lonely travel guidebook to find his way around the nations. He knows the customs, cultures, capital cities and rack towns of all the nations surrounding Israel. When I go into one of these bookshops with a travel section and there's thousands of books on some countries I've never even heard of, and I begin to think of all the details in there, God knows every single detail in every single book about every single country. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? God's omniscience. But it's also a frightening thing. It's actually one of the most scary attributes, isn't it? God's omniscience. Because just think about this. If God knows all about the the geography and the geology and the military of every nation, guess what? He also knows about the sins of the nations. He knows about the wickedness of the nations. God knows the nation's sins. Here's a homework exercise for you. This afternoon, you've got nothing to do. Read through these four chapters and note down the specific sins in relation to the specific nations. You'll see, just for for example, you'll see that God knows that Egypt is a nation full of idolatry and pride. Two big downfalls. God knows that Moab trusts in its money, in its riches. God knows that, that Moab has ridiculed Israel. God knows that Moab is full of pride and idolatry. And he knows that Ammon is a nation racked by the sin of complacency. And that it has inhabited the, the exile towns. You know, when the Israelites were carted off into exile, they sort of moved in and God was very displeased about this. And they also had committed idolatry. By the way, the Lord also knows the specific names of the gods that each nation worships. He knows that it's Molech and Ammon. He knows that it's Chemosh. In Moab, he knows that it's Ammon in Egypt. None of the sins of the nations, even today, are passing God by. It's a very comforting doctrine, isn't it? From the point of view of justice, in a world where there seems to be so much injustice, when at times there seems to be outright evil in the world, with all the atrocities we see, that God isn't missing any of this. Even what the United Nations doesn't have on its record. Even what the human rights agencies don't see, God sees. He knows the stuff that's in your newspapers. And he knows the stuff that doesn't make its way into the newspapers. Not just on a national scale, even specific sins, crimes, God knows. This week we had the World's End murder trial. It was kicked out of court. We don't know who did that crime. I don't know. God knows. None of us this morning, I presume, know what's happened to Madeleine McCann. Who's committed an evil act in that situation? God knows. 
God's seen it. It's a comforting doctrine with regard to justice. It's a frightening doctrine too, isn't it? Because it means that God also sees our sin. That will make us sit a little less comfortably in our seats. He knows about our sins in our individual lives and he knows about our sins in the life of our nation. He knows about the sins of the Scottish nation. He knows about the sins of the English nation. You know, we often think that our nation, we're the kind of good guys and particularly the other nations about are the sort of bad guys. We've all got skeletons in our closets. In the Western nations and in the non-Western nations. And it's a huge problem Not just because we feel a little embarrassed about it now, because God sees our sins, but because God is a just God. And what he sees compels him to act. I read some time ago about a newspaper article in relation to the death of the notorious criminal, Ronnie Cray. Ronnie Cray murdered a lot of people. After his funeral in the Daily Mail newspaper, Rosemary Ann Sisson wrote an article about him and she assured her readers, quote, that whatever sins he had committed, and there were many, he was forgiven in the moment that he met God. Mercy accepted, grace accepted. If that's true, God is either blind which we've seen he's not, or he's unjust. But you see, secondly, we're going to see that not only does God see and know the sins of the nations, but secondly, God judges the nations for their sins. God judges the nations for their sins. If I were to carry out a poll this morning and say to you, what basically is the book of Jeremiah about? Come up with a word. You might say justice. You might say judgment. We've been wrestling with this this year, haven't we? And I know this is a a difficult doctrine for many of us. Just been speaking to people this week when they've asked me, what are you preaching on? And I've told them four chapters of judgment. There's a, a big sigh that comes out. And it's evident that even among mature Christians, it's difficult week after week to hear about the judgment of God. We don't find this an easy doctrine, do we? That's not even to mention the non-Christian world. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, here's what he says, quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously capriciously malevolent bully. A lot of non-Christians believe that, you know. And I would like to submit to you this morning, this is a little bit of an apologetic here, perhaps in light of our whole series, that God's judgment is appropriate and measured. We sometimes find that difficult to see, but it's true. And you see, the problem is this, with Dawkins and ourselves at times, is that we open the Bible and we focus on the sentence of judgment before considering the severity of the crime. You know, we open the Bible up 
Oh, let's just read this. 46 verse 10. A day of vengeance for his foes. The sword will devour till it's satisfied, till it is quenched its thirst with blood. 47 verse 4. The Lord is about to destroy the Philistines. 49 verse 37. I will shatter Elam before their foes. I will bring disaster upon them even in my fierce anger. Just the other week, a news story caught my eye. The headline was, Man Jailed for 19 Life Sentences. And I thought it was very severe. It sounded that way. Read the article and read about his crime. This man had committed 19 acts of rape. And he was given 19 life sentences for it. Suddenly, that seemed like an appropriate sentence to me. You see, we read the Bible, we read about the sentence, we think this is 19 life sentences, it's over the top. And it's not, it's actually appropriate to the crime, which we've just seen in our opening point, the sins of the nations. I want to repent of something this morning. A few times in this series, when we've been on these judgment passages, I've said that God's judgment is severe. God's judgment is not severe. It's hard-heading, but it's not severe. Severe is when you go over the top. God's not going over the top here. And you see, the thing that I miss is the because. The because that has resounded throughout this book. Jeremiah 48, 42. We get it again. Moab will be destroyed as a nation because she defied the Lord. There's reason and rationale behind this judgment. Let me submit to you that if we think God's punishment is severe, it's because we do not think our sin is severe enough. As serious as it is. This is a reasonable wage. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's not a nice little cell with a PlayStation for three months. It's death and it's a reasonable wage. As the poet Robert Browning once said, there may be a heaven, but there must be a hell. Meaning that our sins demand justice if God is just. That's why we get all these descriptions of sins throughout the book of Jeremiah. So that when the judgment comes, we don't say that's severe. Judgment is reasonable, but it is to be feared. Because secondly, notice it is inescapable. Uh, These days, you you tell people this stuff about judgment or they quiz you on it. And you explain God's judgment and you explain that it's reasonable and uh, people shrug their shoulders. They're not scared by this kind of stuff at all. They think you're scaremongering, but they're not scared by it. It's compounded by the fact that some, even so-called Christian teachers, also tell them not to worry about it. I'm stunned this week to learn that one popular writer, and I know some of you will read his books, Rob Bell, He's conducting a tour in the United States just now and the title of the tour is The Gods Aren't Angry. And the premise of his one and a half hour presentation is that all the pagan gods in the Old Testament time got really angry at everything. But the God of the Bible isn't angry with anyone. God just loves people. Full stop. 
Now, it is true that God loves people, but that's a, a terribly unqualified statement in light of what we read in the whole of Scripture, isn't it? And it doesn't help people. It doesn't help people to see why Jesus had to die. It doesn't help people to see why Jesus had to make a bloody sacrifice to appease what? If not the wrath and anger of God on sin. And people aren't afraid of this. There were those in Jeremiah's day who were not afraid of the judgment of God and they thought they could escape it. In fact, they had all these defenses that they thought would withstand God's judgment. The Egyptians, they had their horses and their chariots, uh, 46 verse 4, which they thought would save them. But the Egyptians fell in uh, 605 BC and then again in 568 BC to Babylon. The Elamites, they trusted in their, their weapons, their archery, 4935. But they didn't escape God's anger. God's promised that he would break their bow and the Elamites fell in 596 to Babylon. Same deal for the Ammonites. These guys were sure they would escape. The Ammonites, they lived at the top of this huge valley. It was surrounded by mountains on three sides and they thought they were impregnable. But they were invaded and swept aside in 582 BC in fulfillment of this prophecy. Getting the idea? We could go through the list. The Edomites... The Edomites had some amazing defences. Lord of the Rings fans, they were the, the helms deep of ancient times. They, they had Petra and these incredible rock formations and they thought they could escape defeat at the hands of God. And they were wrong. Maybe there were people telling them, don't worry about it, God wouldn't get angry. He's weak. He's not just... They thought the anger of God would never reach them or breach them, but they were wrong. The judgment of God is not only reasonable, it is also, secondly, inescapable. Accepting the mercy of Jesus Christ, accepting the grace that comes when someone comes to Jesus by faith, there is no hope for our world. Doesn't that frighten you this morning if you're not, if you're not a Christian? You know, there are a lot of things that people get worried about that they shouldn't be anxious about. But this is something you should worry about. People in our culture, they're hiding behind flimsy defences, things they think will save them. Flimsy defences of religion and moralism and materialism and hedonism. And they don't think judgment's ever going to come. And some of us this morning were more worried about whether our identity is going to get stolen and identity fraud than this. Some of us are more worried about the threat of global warming and whether we should have plastic bags or not. Dear friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I lovingly plead with you and pray for you that you will seek and find the Lord while he can be found. Because you don't have forever to make this decision. I'm not being overly dramatic. I, I'm, I'm probably underselling this this morning, the seriousness of this. And all I can do is put some scripture text before you from the New Testament also. Acts 17.31 says that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. We know his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 verse 10 adds that on that day, at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Matthew 25:31 adds that when the Son of Man comes in glory, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. By the way, Jeremiah 46 to 49 is a foreshadow of the final judgment. It's a picture of what's going to happen on a greater scale. And he, Jesus, will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Jesus is going to judge, separate, reward and punish on that day. All people. Some will be saved by grace. Others will rely on their own works and they will go to judgment. Because our works aren't good enough. Now, I know that's massively politically incorrect to say that kind of thing. But I only have one Bible to preach from. And we've only got one authority to go on this morning. And this is what it says. And Christians, doesn't this move you to pray? We thought about this last Sunday. Praying that the Lord will send out People into his harvest field. How badly do people need that prayer to be answered? This doctrine is relevant to Christians, God's judgment. You know, the Apostle Paul, I was thinking about this in Romans chapter 9, he talks about the fact, speaking of his fellow Jews who were without Christ, And facing judgment, he said of them that I wish that I were accursed. He said that he wished he himself could face the judgment instead of them. That's how bad Paul knew the judgment was. That's how bad he knew it was to be accursed. You wonder why he was such a motivated evangelist. He had heaven and he had hell always in his view. But he also knew our final point, and this is a lovely place to finish, that God also saves the nations from their sins. Jeremiah is a book of both judgment and grace. It's a book of justice and mercy. And these passages, if you read them through, later on you will find that they are not fully saturated with judgment. They are also punctuated with glimmers of grace. Sometimes just a line here and there. Sometimes just one sentence in, a, in a, an entire paragraph of judgment. It begins, first of all, with mercy for Israel. We read about that in Jeremiah 46. You can just imagine God's people, how they must have felt as all these oracles are going out. Egypt's going to be destroyed. Moab's going to be destroyed. And they're scattered in all these nations at this point. What's going to happen to us? Are we going to be lost too? And the reassurance is given, 46.27, that God's people won't be wiped out. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place and your descendants from the land of your exile. It's a promise of protection. It's a promise of the presence of God. And it's a promise that's still enforced today to the church of God. Christians, here this morning, I want to remind you that you need not fear God's judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's true. 
Even as we live as strangers and aliens in the world, 1 Peter 1, Jesus says, I'm with you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And he says, John 14, I'll bring you home from the land of your exile. I'm preparing a place for you. Don't worry, don't be upset. Maybe some of us need to hear that reassurance again this morning. Maybe we've been through some difficult experiences recently and it's rocked us in our faith. And we need to be reminded that there is no condemnation for us. Someone says, well, we would expect this of God's people. Sure, but here's the shocker. As well as mercy for Israel, did you notice, strikingly, there's also mercy for the nations. You maybe even noticed that in chapter 46, what was said to Egypt amidst all these promises of judgment, just read verse 26 with me. It's remarkable. Verse 26 of chapter 46. It begins with judgment. I will hand them over to those who seek their lives to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Okay, so this is the judgment bit again. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as times past. Hmm. Moab, 48-47. Yet, after judgment, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the days to come. Ammon, 49 Verse 6, making you work hard this morning. Afterwards, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. In fact, you don't even need to turn to these. They all say pretty much the same thing. Elam, 49, 39. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Elam in the days to come, declares the Lord. What on earth is this all about? There can only be one answer to that question. This is about the grace of the amazing grace of God. In the Old Testament, in a judgment passage, in one of the worst judgment passages in the whole of the Bible, there is the grace and the mercy of God. God who judges nations also spares nations who don't deserve it. What's the proof of this today? Take a look at your map. The likes of Egypt, still around. Elam, is southern Iran today. These nations were not completely obliterated. They continue today. It's the same of the other two. And because this is the case, do you know a greater restoration is happening? Not just sparing these people from temporal judgment, but saving these people from eternal judgment. The church in Iran is growing. The church in Egypt is growing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going into these places and people are being saved for eternity because God made this gracious promise. And it's because God is not a tribal deity, it's because he is the sovereign king of all nations that he can do this. He has the power to save and dispense his grace. At the end of the age... God is going to draw people from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, people. And they are all going to praise his name as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. Isn't that worthy of praise this morning? Just as we come to conclude, let's tie up a a loose end. Why is it that only four nations are spared if you're... Good at mass. And six are lost. 
These promises are not given to the to six of the nations. It's only given to these four. Now, this is a tricky question, and I'm not going to try and give the full and final answer on it. But six of these nations, as they were, were wiped off the face of the map. Ancient Babylon, gone. Why is it that God extends his grace here to, to these four nations? Here's what I want to suggest to you today in terms of a story that might help you to think about it. There's quite a famous sermon. You've maybe heard this illustration before. There was a preacher and he was preaching on the two thieves that died beside Jesus. Two sinful men. Two men whom God knew everything about their sinful lives. Two men deserving death. One on his right, the other on his left. One rejecting Jesus till the end, the other repenting and pleading for forgiveness. One, as far as we know, slipping from this life into a lost eternity, and the other going that very day to meet his Savior in paradise. One knowing the judgment of God and paying the price for his own sin, and the other knowing the mercy of God and the price paid for his sin. The preacher of the sermon was contrasting these two individuals, and he asked, why did God make it so? Why did God not save both men? Why did not both men repent? Why weren't both men saved? 6-4. And the preacher's famous response was this. He said, one was saved so that we might not despair, but only one that we might not presume. This world today is full of despairing people who believe that they will never be saved and that if there is a God, he will never accept them. And to such people, to such thieves dying spiritually on a cross, the offer of mercy is open today. Four wicked nations were spared. And if you turn to Jesus Christ this morning, if you humbly accept Him as, as your Savior, you will escape judgment, or He will save you from it. But you know, our world also is full of presumptuous people. People that think they'll escape God and His judgment forever. Don't want to know. Maybe you've been coming here for practically this whole series, and you've been hearing about the judgment of God. And you've just been brushing it off. This passage is a reminder that if you reject God and you do not turn to Him, you will face His judgment. If the King of the nations is not going to be your Savior, He will be your judge. I don't know about you, but I prefer Him to be my Savior. I pray for you that he will be your savior, not your judge. And I pray that if you know that this morning, that you will join me in proclaiming the king of the nations to the nations. With the Holy Spirit's power and with our best efforts. As Lord and Savior and judge of all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for speaking to us. 
Thank you for making it clear what you're saying. Help us now in the quietness to respond to you. Father, you rule over the world, but so often we won't let you rule our lives. We don't fear you. We don't honor you. We put other gods in your place. Forgive us. We come today to the cross of your son, to his bloody wounds, and to that place where the price is paid. And we ask for your grace afresh or for the first time. Help us, Lord, also to proclaim you with confidence as the King of all nations and the Lord of all lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.